Welcome to the Future Think podcast from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with my colleague, Andrew Maynard, we chat with a variety of experts on and off campus about science, technology, innovation, and policy. This podcast brings you the hallway conversations where we think about our collective future. On today's episode, we gathered together to talk about our reactions to the 2016 election and what it could mean for science, technology, and innovation. This is truly a spontaneous conversation. Andrew and I literally walked up and down the hall and gathered a few people together. No one prepped notes except for this little intro. Before we begin, I want to tell you about a few things. First, if you haven't already listened to Clark Miller and me talk about elections as knowledge systems, I encourage you to check out that episode. It's longer than our usual chat, but we really dive into the weeds. Andrew and I will be reconvening with Clark in a couple of weeks to talk more about elections once the dust starts to settle from this one. Second, if you want to be part of these chats on the ground, you might want to check out our master's program in science and technology policy. You can find a link to it and to all of our degree programs on our school website, sfis.asu.edu. Third, be sure to check out our five-part Future Think podcast series as part of the Disruptive Innovation Festival. Go to thinkdiff.co, that's T-H-I-N-K-D-I-F dot C-O, and search for Future Think, one word. You can join the conversation there by adding your comments to each episode. And finally, please subscribe to the Future Think podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and rate us, and be sure to tell your friends. Thanks. Okay, Andrew, we grabbed a few people from down the hall. We did. We're going to talk about the election, but before we do that, I want everybody to know who we're talking to. So, Michael, tell us who you are. I'm Michael Bennett. I'm an associate research professor in the School for the Future of Innovation and Society. Thanks. Bob. And I'm Bob Cook-Deegan, and I'm a professor in the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and in the Consortium for Science Policy and Outcomes. Hi, I'm Diana Bowman. I'm an associate professor in the Sandra J. O'Connor College of Law and School for the Future of Innovation in Society. Super. So what are we going to talk about? Well... Apocalypse. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but I think, though, that we can really have... Our job is to think about the future. So what does the election mean now, now that we know how it went, for the future of science and technology and innovation? So I'm going to just jump in. Please do. Uh, so I, I'm struggling with this because the thing that's, that we have really got to grapple with is Donald Trump was democratically elected and we have him as president for the next four years. Yep. We've got to work with that. That's right. And somehow we've got to reconcile everything that went on before the election with how we actually serve society and address really some major societal issues, especially around science and technology with this new administration. Yeah, because it's not like a hard reset. It's not as though we say there was no past that got us here, right? Right, right. So you have that legacy. Yeah. So how do we deal with it? We have a pretty serious interruption of the momentum. Mm -hmm. um, I do mainly biomedical research policy, 
and um, in the last two years, two major initiatives have been pushed from the top, uh, the Precision Medicine Initiative and the Cancer Moonshot, mm -hmm. and they were building infrastructure and pushing in a particular direction. I think both parties are going to be very supportive of biomedical research. But one party was, you know, the, the Clinton faction was organized, had things going, and it was kind of clear what was going to happen. I think in the biomedical sciences, we aren't going to know, what we know is that the players that are going to be important probably aren't going to be the ones that we're familiar with and know. I think that's going to be a signature of the administration. So, so do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing, or we just don't know yet? We because don't know. Sometimes right? a shake-up is know. actually good. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Right. I, I, I simply think we don't know. Um, I, think, I think we can count on both parties to continue to be against Alzheimer's disease and cancer. Okay. Um, so do you think that means that the Cancer Moonshot is going to continue? Who knows? Right. Right. It's, who knows? Maybe it keeps going. Maybe it doesn't. And I would just add, in terms of a major initiative, the brain initiative as well. Uh -huh. mm. um, and my thinking around that is, for projects that focus such as brain mapping, it's actually dependent on a lot of international partners, that we can't do these type of big-scale initiatives and have the type of advances and breakthroughs that we're hoping for without the EU and China and Taiwan and those type of countries. And so, for me, how this plays out in terms of international relations around big initiatives will be really interesting to see over the next couple of weeks and the next couple of months. So, so that immediately has resonances of Brexit, mm -hmm. because of course what happened with Brexit exactly. was you had a country with a lot of international ties, especially with Europe, all of a sudden those were in question. So now with all of the rhetoric around um, the US becoming, becoming a little bit more isolationist, what we don't know is the extent to which those research collaborations are going to continue. And maybe actually it's an opportunity to, to go to the new administration and actually argue the case for maintaining and strengthening these collaborations. Sure. Just to, to dial it back a little bit and um, perhaps go a little theoretical, I'm really curious about what all of this, um, I guess now not even 12 hours old, um, transformation means for uh, a classic commitment to objectivity in scientific yeah. research. Yeah. Um, because one of the things that's been most striking about um, the, uh, the response, the, the societal response to um, then-candidate Trump has been um, this difficulty that we've had, especially journalists, but many of us um, outside of journalism as well, this difficulty that we've had in dealing with him in something like an objective way. Because the, uh, the kind of let's just call it liberal approach that, um, that he and his team took to uh, dealing with factual matters right. made it extremely difficult for classically trained journalists and analysts to, to assess him without uh, kind of going into a space in which you, you basically were effectively calling him out as being untruthful or right. 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 Um, that resonates in a really interesting way with the scientific community, obviously, because one of, of the, again, classical commitments has been to, to objectivity. Mm -hmm. When you think about that kind of phenomenon against the backdrop of one of the, the largest problems confronting the scientific community now, namely climate change, and the fact that for a very different kind of reason, it's also extremely difficult now to be objective, the reason being that there is no outside yeah. for us anymore. You're on a kind of messy terrain, right? Even as folks who have spent many years thinking about 
the philosophical commitment it, to objectivity and what it means. It, it feels like the ground rules have changed. It's difficult. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, very difficult. Bob. Well, I was going to say, I think there are certain domains where the norms are not threatened. Mertonian norms are really not going to be threatened if you're thinking about CERN or high energy physics or mm -hmm. chemistry or even, say, cancer research or, or brain research. Probably those are going to be areas where international collaborations are still enabled and objectivity is still respected and everybody's in favor of it. The areas of science that are going to be highly contentious are the ones that are connected to energy policy, mm -hmm. climate change, right. and the areas that you guys know more about. And I'm interested in your perspectives on it's going to be the age-old battle of the role of social sciences um, and certain domains of research. In my own area, it's going to be things like stem cell research again and embryonic stem mm -hmm. cell research, things like that that are going to be possibly hot, although who knows? Who so, knows? So, so I think the challenge we've seen is a complete disregard of evidence. And, and so we know in society that, that people don't always treat evidence objectively. In fact, they rarely do. We have the built-in heuristics which allow us to sort of make sense of the world in a way that it's beneficial to us, especially with things like motivated reasoning. We've seen a lot of that. But I don't think I've ever seen such blatant disregard of evidence where you basically call black, white, and you think that if you call mm -hmm. black, white enough, people are going to believe you. And you've seen in the media, actually, people did start believing the false message. Um, and I don't know how you move on from that in these contentious areas. So you take climate change or energy security. What do you do if the lie becomes the normal truth that people believe? And in that way, Bob's opening um, suggestion that we, we might be talking about apocalypse has a really interesting, uh, it's actually useful as a kind of insight because there is the, the notion of apocalypse as a kind of catastrophe, um, the destruction of, of the world as you've known it. But then there's a secondary meaning of it that, um, that suggests uh, that you are on a new terrain now, one that calls for a completely different type of insight, a different set of optics and frames in order to make sense of even basic and fundamental issues. You, you should sure. have been in spin. So you, you've now spun apocalypse as something positive. It's something that calls for a hell of a lot of work. Right, right. Yeah, but I, you know, and I think that that then we need to think about this sense of referendum on expertise, yep. which has been very much attacked throughout much of the campaign season. And I don't know how, I'm looking at Andrew's bookshelf, it's full of books about uncertainty and risk, risk right? Yes. Um, and I don't, I have a lot of uncertainty about what the role is going to be for expertise. So, so actually, I think you can draw from a lot of study over the last few years on science communication and science engagement. And it, it ties in with this, this questioning of expertise. Mm -hmm. And certainly you see a sense within the expert community, whether that's academics or scientists, mm -hmm. that we are on the moral high ground and people should believe us. Mm -hmm. I actually think we're now in a position where we have to justify why people listen to us. I think that's right. When you line up what just happened here in the States with Brexit, it's hard to not understand those two massive data points. It's a kind of, uh, uh, to put it mildly, a bearish assessment of the value, the societal value of expertise, right? In some ways, technocrats have been now voted out twice. Mm -hmm. There's a dynamic that we haven't talked about um, and that is the other thing that has happened is 
all three branches of government are now finally in alignment for the first time in a really long time. Right. So the brakes are off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is directly pertinent to this role of expertise. Right. It diminishes it. So. Yes. And I think there's a real opportunity um, to put the spin in terms of the apocalypse in a positive. There's a real opportunity here given how small the Trump campaign was and the machinery and the fact that we're looking at 4,000 people having to be appointed Mm -hmm. into the Trump administration for people who may not have actually been at the forefront of some of these discussions Mm -hmm. in terms of public eye to actually put themselves forward and actually take up positions in the Trump administration despite the fact they may not agree with all of the policy talk and what has gone on but potentially we might see new people who can push their agenda within the Trump administration that we may not have seen previously. Really interesting. Yeah, I I think it forces us to act. It it basically forces us to drop our complacency and assume that we are in a dominant position. And it forces us to ask the question, if we truly want to change society and have an impact, how are we going to do it within the current landscape? Well, and I think, too, to recognize that the current landscape is not academia. It's not marble buildings in Washington. It is actual people, imagine that, right, who are not, uh, haven't been part of our conversation. We haven't engaged them. Similarly, they haven't um, engaged, or maybe they've tried to engage academia, and we've been just not paying attention. That is entirely possible. So so we now need to begin to practice what we preach. So with responsible innovation, for instance, we talk about engaging with people, bringing them into the conversation, making them part of the process of finding pathways forward. But clearly, we've been missing 50% of the conversation uh, of the population with right. this, and we can't just pick and choose who we engage with. And I think we've got to completely rethink how we engage with these communities that feel disenfranchised. So, Andrew, I know you had some ideas about some people that might be following up on um, the suggestion <laughs> there may be some people that we aren't used to seeing in the national policy making system. You, you mean that, that are actually now going to be sort of part of it? Yeah. Well, I, I'm not trying to start throwing names around, but I, but I go back to Dai's point. I think there is at the moment this huge vacuum of people that can play a prominent role, especially in science and technology policy within the new administration. I think what we've seen from the campaign, there's largely a blank sheet there. There have been some very big overarching ideas of what the Trump um, administration want to do, but very, very little detail which means there's actually a tremendous opportunity for people to come in, actually show a little bit of humility as well as make their expertise available and be part of building new solutions, new pathways forwards. The the challenge, of course, is that there are huge ideological differences. So one of the big elephants in the room is you look at some of the rhetoric leading up to the, um, the election and quite frankly, it's been incredibly disturbing in terms of how disenfranchised and minority groups have been disparaged. But if we can work out how to move on from there, I think there's a great opportunity to actually address some very real issues that we have in the country. And not only minority groups, I mean, to, to right. extend the, the comment and to, um, to um, add a, a fine point to it, not only minority groups, right? I mean, women uh, generally, yes. which are yes. actually a majority. A and that brings us around to an interesting additional dimension here that calls for, again, a lot of work in that secondary apocalyptic sense. Mm-hmm. Um, those people that we're starting to imagine now who might actually 
uh, be inclined to step into especially science and tech policy positions within a Trump administration, but really any aspect of it, they've got a hell of a lot of work to do right now if they've not historically been on board with him. If you are a, a person who is committed to uh, civil service and has expertise, but again, you weren't aligned with that um, that campaign. It's um it's going to be to put it mildly very tricky. Yep. If you were a professional, say you're a lawyer, and you have an extra legal obligation, right, to to serve the court and in some ways to to serve legislative processes more generally, um, all the more trouble for you, right? Personally, um, first of all, politically, you have to think about what you're willing to do and how you can contribute if you decide to without compromising yourself. But then there's also uh, the, the professional consequences, right? Right, that, right. That kind of... So, so leading on from there, let me ask a question. You look at just the science community mm -hmm. to start with. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of scientists, including senior scientists in the country, are gonna face a choice. Do they oppose the new administration or do they work with the new administration? How should scientists be thinking about what choice they make? Can I have a really pragmatic answer? It's going to come down to funding. Okay. Sure. Follow um, that up. In terms of scientists are driven by funding cycles. Yep. Scientists rely on grants, be it NIH or NSF. They are not going to walk out of their labs or out of their research groups based on in my view, because of ideological reasoning. <laughs> mm -hmm. If they cannot access funding for their work, that will be a driver. But right. on the day-to-day -day activities, they have teams to support. They have they are fundamentally committed to the types of research they're doing, and they will so they, need to continue to... They, they've got to be implicitly supportive of the administration. And, and Absolutely. And strategically um, apolitical mm -hmm. as yes. well. And so when you look back historically at institutions that have fared well independent of the ideology that's governed our nation, science generally um, seems to be at the, at the forefront of that list. Yep. Most domains of science. Right. Mm -hmm. But then, Bob, so when, when the Trump administration comes to you as one of the country's leading experts on biotech, what do you do? Well, so, so, so part of that is an easy question to answer, um, and that's you keep doing what you're doing, right? right? Um, there are going to be a couple questions that are smack dab, there are elephants in the room and we're going to have to deal with them. One is, what is the funding base going to be? Yep. We don't yeah. know. There's been zero, Nothing. zero discussion about right. that mm -hmm. in this election. We have no idea where science ranks in the priorities. It just hasn't been discussed. It hasn't been an issue. This is a campaign that was completely dominated by who's worse than whom right. um, and not so much about don't what the policies the are going to be. The taco trucks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so we don't know the answer to that question. And I think we're also going to get expert and at doing the same. We're going to face the same questions that John McCain faced, and that um, Kelly Ayotte faced, and people are going to and John Kasich. These are folks who had to make really tough choices, and they some of them clearly made decisive choices right. and some of them uh, it's, switched it's around. It's different now because we've moved from campaigning to an administration to government. Yeah. Has to, to government. Yes. But it's the same yes. kind of moral dilemma right. and yes. it's the same repeat player dilemma that you face is I want to influence this policy but I don't want to sacrifice yes. my principles. So, so now let's get back to where we were earlier looking at a fairly well, a contentious issue that shouldn't really be, and that's climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and it's contentious because you've both got ideology and policy and, and lives that are affected by it. How do we then engage with that? Or let, let me rephrase that. 
does the science community stand back and critique and say you're doing things right or doing things wrong? Or do they pragmatically get involved and work out how they work with the administration to either nudge or push things in a certain direction? You should answer this question, but my instinct is that the question will be reframed and shift from is it happening to what do we do about it? So, so that and I think is the hope, yes, yes. We hope so. Yes. Because I th and I think that if that reframing happens, then scientists can say, okay, I've got to do this work because I've got this end target and it is a scientific target right. in mind and this is how I get there rather than I have to engage with this political movement because I have to help an election get won. I think that's an important distinction. I, so I think it's really important and you're beginning to distinguish between the ideology which says I want to convert the world into believing that man-made climate change is real towards saying I want to make the world a better place. How do I do that practically? What knowledge is needed? How are we going to apply that knowledge? Um, irrespective of what my ideology is. And I think the hope is that we strip away the idea of converting people and move towards fixing problems. So I think that's a pretty good place for us to tie it up with the coda that comes back to distrust of expertise. If experts start saying, we need to reframe the questions and the issues because we have, these are problems. How can we move past that notion being contested and, and being an issue of, oh, no, 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 that's just the ivory tower. Right. Coming, coming down from uh, our preferred Olympic perches, um, stepping into our, an arena and shifting our delivery such that we are uh, proposing rather than preaching, I think, would be one way to, um, to introduce some modesty mm -hmm. right. to as expertise discourse. Propose, don't preach. Agreed? Um, agreed. Um, listen. Okay. Well, and, and I hope there's a shared value in democracy. Yes. The people have spoken, and they spoke pretty loud. And if we aren't listening, then we're missing a pretty important message. Yeah. Okay. Pose, don't preach, listen. Yeah, we fixed that. Thanks, <laughs> 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 guys. Done and dusted. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. The Future Think podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Please subscribe. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and on Twitter at Future Think Pod.